Good morning, Redeemer Church. If we haven't met yet, uh, my name is Scott, and it's a privilege to serve here as one of the elders uh, for Redeemer Church. And we may not have met if you came along more recently, as my family and I just returned from six weeks in the U.S., where we had the chance to visit with friends and churches across the U.S. Um, and I hope that, that you, we want to carry a message from those churches to you that I hope is of encouragement, that there are so many churches around the U.S., not just in the U.S., but around the world that are praying for this church. Every time we have the opportunity to go out from Dubai and visit with believers in other places, I'm reminded that there are so many that care for the gospel witness and for the community happening here at Redeemer. So I hope that's of encouragement to you. I also want to bring you greetings from Redeemer Fellowship in Kuwait. I had the joy of being with those brothers and sisters a couple days ago, preaching at their service on Friday. Uh, and the church is doing very well by God's grace, a church that Redeemer had the joy of to help plant. Uh, the church is growing, the gospel is being proclaimed, uh, so let's praise God for that new church in Kuwait City. Uh, this morning, we're returning uh, to John 17, where Pastor Chris uh, so ably began us last week, and our task uh, for this time is to finish the look in John 17 by looking at all of those verses 6 to 26 that were just read for us. And let's pray together once more uh, before we do that. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask now as we gather around these words of our Lord Jesus Christ, Lord, would you fill our eyes, open our eyes to the truths by your Spirit that we see there and transform us more and more into Christ's image according to your will and to your glory in Christ. In his name, amen. Well, our passage this morning has us right in the middle of one of the most intimate and emotional looks or portraits of the Lord Jesus Christ in all of Scripture. Here in John's Gospel, this is sandwiched in between Judas and what he's really up to. In chapter 13, we learn that Judas is the betrayer. He is the one that will betray Jesus. And then in chapter 18, Judas comes back, this time with a band of people, to take Jesus from the garden to arrest him. And in these several chapters in between chapter 13 and chapter 18, we get these verses that we've been spending so much time on in these last weeks, this intimate teaching of our Lord to His disciples in the upper room. And it's now climaxing in this time of prayer together with them. This is not the prayer we see recorded in the, in the other Gospels like uh, Luke, where uh, Jesus is in the garden and He's in anguish, praying uh, with even sweat like drops of blood coming out. This prayer is in the upper room. It's called the high priestly prayer. Really, it's the final quiet moment that Jesus has with His disciples before going on to the anguish of the garden, the torturous trials, the sufferings of the cross. And as this is a prayer, these verses are not the directive teaching that we saw even a few chapters earlier or say in the Sermon on the Mount. This isn't a, a theological uh, reasoning like we would see maybe in, in Romans from Paul. This is almost more poetic, conversational. Jesus is praying. He isn't so much telling us something or describing us something, describing something to us, but He's more so showing us something. 
Through prayer, through this window that we have into his prayer, he's showing us the mind of God. He's reflecting on the nature of God and praying petitions accordingly. Imagine. Here we have the incredibly unique opportunity of seeing intra-Trinitarian communication. The Son, Jesus Christ, praying to the Father. God speaking to God about God and what God's work in God's world for God's people might be. It's pretty pure theology. It's amazing. And while we need all of Scripture, we need all the history books, we need all the, the recounting of sermons and the theological reflections, these verses in John 17, this opportunity to see the longest prayer recorded of our Lord Jesus in Scripture, we have a unique opportunity to draw near to the very heart of God, and in doing so, find our own prayers forever changed. Have you ever gone to pray and you don't know what to pray for? Or let me ask that question another way. Have you ever gone to pray at all? Do you pray? Friends, I think we need to be honest with ourselves that we live in a relentlessly distracted age. Ask anyone how they're doing, how their week was, and the answer will inevitably be busy. That's what we always say, isn't it? We're constantly full of our to-do lists. We have a stream of friends in close and distant relations that need a reply to their WhatsApp right away. We have things to do, people to see, CVs to clean up and send out. Speaking only of social media, much less all the other pressures of modern life, it was John Piper who said, one of the greatest uses of Twitter and Facebook will be to prove on the last day that prayerlessness was not from lack of time. Are you a prayerless person? Are we a prayerless church? Some of us may lack for prayer not because of just time pressures, but we simply don't know how. Kids, I know a lot of you are in the room with us today. Maybe that's you. Maybe you don't know what prayer is, how to pray. I remember when I was eight or nine years old, my prayer life consisted of one main, very eager prayer request. For whatever reason, I had this ongoing, unfounded fear that while I was sleeping, our house was going to burn down, burn to the ashes. So every night before going to sleep, I would pray, God, please, 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 don't let there be a fire. And my theology at work at that time was if I could stack up the pleases, then maybe that would give the prayer more impact. And I certainly can remember many times falling asleep before actually getting to the petition itself because I was still in the pleases. Now, such a request for safety is not a bad thing. Our Heavenly Father invites us to cast all our anxieties on Him. But whether it's you kids that perhaps have a, a prayer life like that, or some of you busy adults, some of you seasoned prayer warriors, I hope that our look at this text this morning reminds us of the joy of what Christ models for us here. Prayer. 
Pastor Tim Keller says, our prayers should arise out of immersion in the scripture. We speak only to the degree to which we are spoken to. The wedding of the Bible and prayer anchors your life down in the real God. Again, all of scripture can inform our prayers, but this scripture in John 17, which is a prayer, all the more. Let's dig into this prayer. I'm not going to claim any originality around our outline this morning. Scholars and commentators like D.A. Carson and others helpfully point out that there's five main petitions here, five main things that Jesus is praying for his disciples, and we're going to look at each one of them, not sequentially verse by verse, but drawing them out from the verses, because again, in a poetic style, a conversational style, Jesus returns at different times to the same petition. And as we look at them, I hope that you're encouraged. Encouraged to know what Jesus is praying for you and instructed in how we can pray. So here's the first of the five petitions. Jesus prays for his disciples' protection. Jesus prays for his disciples' protection. Look in verse 11. Verse 11 reads, And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father, Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. And then dropping down to verse 15 and 16. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. You see, Jesus offers this prayer for his disciples, this prayer for protection, or the word in the text is to keep them. He's offering this prayer for his disciples because he is going away. He's not going to be there any longer to gather them, to keep them, to protect them. He's going away. He's going to the Father. I am coming to you, he says. He knows he's going there, and he's not, no longer going to be with the disciples. And as Jesus goes to the Father, the disciples are remaining in a difficult situation. Now they are joined to Christ as his followers. They're no longer of the world, meaning they're no longer aligning with and agreeing with the philosophies and the mindset of those around them that are depraved in mind. And there is an evil one who's also in the world, active and out to deceive them, discourage them, divide them, destroy them. They're not of the world, but they're in the world. And Jesus knows they need protection. They need to be kept. And what sort of protection? Notice that Jesus clarifies what he is not asking. He's not asking that the disciples be taken out of the world. And we might think, why? Why, Jesus? Why, why leave us here? Why leave us here in this sad, difficult place where there's pain and there's suffering and there's temptation? Why, Jesus? Why don't take us out of the world? As the first words of the song that we know well asks and answers, do we feel that the world is broken? We do. Do we feel the shadows deepen? We do. We're here in this world feeling the depth of the challenge of life here. And the prayer for Christ for our protection comes to us giving us confidence 
that we see in the next lines of those, that song. But do you know that all the dark won't stop the light from getting through? Jesus' prayer for our protection to keep us gives us confidence that the light is breaking through in this world, this place of sorrow. And Jesus could pray this in confidence, knowing that the Father would have the same heart because they are His children as well. Jesus, in verse 10, if you glance your eyes there, says, All mine are yours, and yours are mine. So Jesus says, All mine, all Jesus's are yours. They're the Father's, and all the Father's are mine. So the Father is rejoicing to hear this prayer. The Father wants to answer this prayer because these that Jesus is praying for, His followers are also the Father's. And Jesus has told us in chapter 16 that the Spirit is eager and ready to be the one who will come and affect the work of this prayer, to guide them and guard them in the truth. Christ praying for the protection from evil of His disciples is the triune God's commitment to Himself to be with His people and to be their God. Friend, are you feeling weary? Are you feeling alone? Are you feeling the darkness of this world? Or perhaps your own sin? Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. In Him we find protection for our souls. And although we remain in this world, we are doing so as the protected, as the kept. Do you notice the important thing here for us to pray for in this that the greatest threat to our being kept, the thing that we need protection from, is not ill health, it's not persecution, it's not a low bank account, it's not the presence of pain, it's not the lack of food. The threat is the evil one. The evil one who longs to choke out the growth of the seeds planted by the truth in hearts. So as we join Jesus in praying for protection, as you pray for the protection of others, for yourself, let's not neglect to remember that our greatest threat is the evil one. And Jesus, by the Spirit, is the only one who has overcome the world and the evil one and has the power to protect us. Well, the second petition shows us that there's a purpose to this first petition right away. This prayer for protection, for a keptness to His people, that they would be secure, that then has an outcome. And we see it in the second petition, that Jesus prays for the disciples' unity. See that again in verse 11 that we just read. In verse 11, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, protect them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. And Jesus returns to this in, in verses 20 and 23 and expands on it. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also those who will believe in me through their word. Verse 21 that they may also be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, 
that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. So having prayed that the disciples will be protected, that they would be kept in God, Jesus is now praying that these disciples would reflect the unity of God, that they would be one even as Jesus and the Father are one. And I, and I sort of mentioned this in passing in the, in, as we looked at the first petition, but here it's explicit in Jesus' prayer that Jesus is basing his petition on the very nature and character of God. The God of the Bible is one God in three persons, eternally and completely glorious. The New City Catechism that we use in our tweens ministry, question number three, which I like that it's question number three, asks, how many persons are there in God? There are three persons in God, in the one true and living God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are the same in substance, equal in power and glory. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are one. Try unity. They are unity. Our God is one. And therefore, when Jesus is praying for the unity of his disciples, he's praying that they would reflect the very nature of God and who he is. You see, in the world's eyes, unity is only utilitarian. It's only functional. And it can have very nice functions. The, the unity of instruments in a symphony has the function of beautiful music. Or it could be powerful. Unity, the unity of a mob or some aggressors can topple a leader or can make social change. Unity can be very powerful. Unity can bring security when nations come together and fight a battle together and win the war. So unity has those functional purposes in this world, but that's not merely what the Bible is talking about with unity, because the unity that the disciples are to have is not only functional, but it's actually an act of worship. It's actually inherent to their being and who they are as followers of God, because God, by His nature, is unity. Unity can't be assumed, though, and that's why Jesus prays for it. Do you notice that he prays that they would become perfectly one? And we still are in the process of becoming perfectly one. We have not yet attained to that in this life. And the sad news is, we won't. While this prayer is an aspiration for us, while it's true for us positionally, we are one in the Lord. And it will be true for us eternally. We will be one in heaven together. Now we depend and we trust on the Lord to grow us into that unity. And oh, friends, are you praying this for Redeemer Church? For your fellow believers, are you praying for unity? For a culture of forbearance and grace towards one another? For believing the best of one another? For harmony? For burden-bearing companionship? by which we can show the gospel to the world of the forgiveness and grace we extend towards one another. And speaking of the world, did you notice the missional energy that Jesus wraps this petition in? The missional energy? Verse 20, I do not ask for these only, 
but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Verse 21, he's saying there's an outcome to this unity. He's saying that they may also be one, just as you, Father, in me and I in you, that they may be in us, so that the world may believe that you've sent me. He comes again in verse 23, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me. Jesus' prayer for unity here is brimming with this idea that His disciples, as they're protected and kept, and as they're united in His name around the one salvation, that there's going to be this sort of cascading overflow of witness out into the world, that more and more people are going to hear about Jesus and see His love demonstrated in community and are going to believe They're going to repent of their sins, look to Christ for salvation. Unity has a mission to proclaim the gospel of Jesus. And as I said, unity is often hard. In our world, in our fallen conditions, at times the best we can do is is what Paul says, that as far as it's possible for us, as far as it's possible for us, be at peace with all men. There's so much that we could say about how to do unity, what it could look like, what are the complications. But I think what we're seeing here in this text is rather than unpacking everything that can be said, what we're seeing here is the foundation for our unity and the ambition for our unity. The foundation for our unity is the very character of God. So we can pursue unity confident that this is not just a nice to have, but the pursuit of unity is a worshipful act intrinsic to who we are as believers. And then secondly, the ambition that we have is that the nations would know Jesus Christ is King. And if we can maintain that foundation and that ambition, I wonder if the day-to-day how-to would become more apparent. Friends, let's pray for unity. Let's pray that our church and that our Christian community here in Dubai and around the world would reflect the character of God in in His unity. Well, the third petition carries on this sort of missional ambition of the first two. The, The disciples are not of this world, so they need to be protected and kept. They need to be unified And now Jesus prays something else. He prays that they would be sent ones into the world, consecrated for lives of witness. The third petition is Jesus prays for His disciples' consecration. Verse 17 through 19, look with me there. Verse 17 through 19. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they may also be sanctified in the truth. Well, here in the ESV translation that we use, the word sanctify there in relation to the disciples is used and and consecrate in relation to Jesus in verse 19. But it's really the same Greek word in all three of those phrases. It's the same Greek word. It's the same concept. Jesus is praying that just as He consecrates Himself, that He wants His disciples to be consecrated. And maybe those words are unfamiliar to you. You don't know what those mean or how they're being used here, but the idea is a setting apart unto holy service. 
When you consecrate something, you're, you're taking it and you're dedicating it for a specific purpose, that it would be useful especially for spiritual, for holy things. You're consecrating that thing. What did Jesus consecrate himself to do? Jesus consecrated himself, and he was sent into the world for the holy purpose. He was set apart of the important work of a life fully in obedience to God, fully in obedience to God, suffering even to the point of death, death on a cross, paying the penalty for our sin, rising again to new life to offer the hope of eternity. That is what Jesus consecrated himself to do. And the disciples now need not only protection and not only unity, but they need the, the heart-level conviction of consecration. They must, like Jesus, be sent. Sent into the world for a purpose. To be the light that the dark can't stop getting through. And the means of consecration here, how is this going to happen, is the truth. That the disciples would abide more and more in the truth of God's Word, that they would be sanctified, that they would be consecrated. And in doing so, their lives would no longer become just being pawns in the evil game of this world, but they would be as agents of truth for the glories of Christ. Now, I want to emphasize here that this consecration is not a special label given to the pastors, given to the missionaries, given to the evangelists. This is not a consecration for the avengers of the spiritual world. This consecration, this holy setting apart, is for all of the disciples, all who would follow after Christ regardless of their age, regardless of their location, regardless of their season. You see, so much of why we feel tossed to and fro at times, feeling adrift like we don't know what our purpose is in this world, is that we've mixed our vocation with our consecration. We are not meant to find our identity in our vocation, but in our consecration in who we are before the Lord, in our setting a part of ourselves unto His purposes, regardless of what form and shape that takes in our lives. To know where you should go and to know your purpose in life, you don't need to find your inner voice. You don't need to know your spirit animal. You don't need to know your truth. To know what to do with this one life that you have. When we look inwards to ourself to find an orientation for what we should do outwards, we're practicing not consecration, but narcissism. We need to hear the truth. We need to be spoken from, from outside of ourselves, by the Word of God, consecrated for it, and then live out in whatever way the vocation that we've been entrusted to, the talent, the opportunities that we have, to the glory of God. Friend, pray for your consecration. Pray for your sanctification in the truth. Pray that our church would collectively be sanctified and set apart by the truth, that God's Word would hold authority over all that we do, every song that we sing, every community group that gathers, every conversation that happens in a food court, that it would be held under the authority of God's Word. 
And when we do that, we would live as sent ones, sent to Dubai, sent to our neighborhoods, sent to our homes as consecrated agents of truth, sacrificially laying down our lives for the good of others and the glory of Christ. Jesus was our model of sent consecration in truth, and he prayed that we would follow in that way. And the fourth petition, the fourth petition is that Jesus brings, what he brings is he, he prays for the disciples' hearts. He prays for their hearts as they engage in that sober task of being sent ones in the world, consecrated unto the Lord's purposes, secure and kept in him, united. And he prays for their hearts. He prays for their joy. Jesus prays for his disciples' joy. Look in verse 13. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I'll read that again, verse 13. But now I am coming in I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Here, Jesus is anticipating returning to the Father. He knows the impact of that, though, is going to be the fulfillment of joy in the disciples. You see, the Gospels, and John even especially, sort of traces these themes of the disciples not really understanding what Jesus is up to. There's this progressive and unfolding understanding as they sort of bumble along, getting the picture for what he's, his program is. The conception of a crucified Messiah was not something that they were ready to receive. But Jesus knew. Jesus knew that once he went to the Father, once he returned, his work on earth would have been finished. And for the joy set before him, he would have endured the cross. And having the full joy of having been obedient to the Father for the good of the world, Jesus when he sees the Father again, would be experiencing fullness of joy. And even in that moment, as he anticipates that joy, he knows that at that point, the disciples will have finally seen his glory on display as the Savior of the world and the ascended King, and they would have the fullness of joy. Does that prayer for joy surprise you at all? After thinking of the challenge of the evil one in this world and the, the responsibility of being a consecrated, sent one into the world, we might think that Jesus would pray for their strength, that he'd pray for their resilience, that he'd pray for their wisdom in knowing how to do all of these things that the Christian life calls them to do. And those things are good, and we should pray for them also. But Jesus prays, primarily here for their joy. He prays for their joy. Joy is a sense of happy satisfaction, a heart that has found all of its wantings realized, that's beheld what it most desired, that's found what it was looking for. That's a joyful heart. You see, Jesus was after something more than a mission to be known around the world. He was after more than the protection and the keptness of his disciples. 
He was after their joy. The joy that he had in fulfilling the Father's will for them to know. And friends, are your prayers, are our prayers calibrated to that degree of hope? Are you satisfied to merely pray for some changes in your circumstances? Again, that new job, that better health diagnosis, that bigger bank account? Or are you praying for the experience of a heart of joy? Deep, abounding, unfathomable joy, all the right and godly desires of your heart met and satisfied, all the wrongs forgotten. Friend, that can be yours in Jesus. Turn to Him, trust in Him. Repent of your sins and look to Him. Be united with Him, and you will find joy. Let's pray for joy. Let's pray for joy for this church, nothing less. Let's not be content to be an anxious church. Let's not be content to be an analytical church that always is looking into things but never amazed, always toiling but never bearing fruit. Oh, would Redeemer be a joyful church? Psalm 16, or I'm sorry, Psalm 16, verse 11, reads, You have made known to me the paths of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And that brings us to the fifth and final petition of this high priestly prayer. Jesus prays that his disciples would be with him forever. Jesus prays that his disciples would be with him forever. Those are precious, incredible words that our Savior prayed for us. Look in verse 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus is praying that we would be with him, and he's not thinking at that moment in the upper room because they're with him there already. He's thinking of that day when he goes to the Father. He wants the disciples to be there with him too. His eternal kingdom. He returns to this in verse 24. Some, and this is, well, he returned in 24, what we just read, something he started in verses 4 and 5, which Chris had us look at last week. In verses 4 and 5, let me read that. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. You see there earlier in the chapter, Jesus is asking in full confidence for the full measure of God's glory to be given to him, which is incredible if you think about it. If you had any question of the deity of Jesus, it's right there. Jesus is asking for the keys to the kingdom. He is asking for everything. He's saying, Father, give me your glory. And in verse 24, he's looking ahead. He's praying for his disciples. And in both occasions, 
First of all, he's looking back. He's looking back before the foundations of time, he's, he, before the world began, and he's, he's remembering the, the unity and the love that he enjoyed with the Father and the Spirit from all time. In this moment, Jesus is thinking outside of time. He's thinking eternally, and then he looks forward, and he says, now, as we go forward in the future, I want my disciples with me. I want them to see my glory. And if we can put our Old Testament hats on for a second, this is all the more fascinating. You remember the story in Exodus 33 and 34 where Moses made a request of God? Do you remember what that was? Moses was on Mount Sinai, and he was receiving the law. He was receiving the Ten Commandments, and the people down at the bottom of the mountain were building a golden calf. They were rebellious. And in this time, Moses is being sent from the top of the mountain. He's being consecrated under the work of going and delivering the truth to the people at the bottom of the mountain. But what does he say on the way down? Daunted by the task, knowing that he needs God's power and provision and a clear revelation of who God is to be his light in that time, not content only with the law. He says, God, show me your glory. Show me your glory. And God says, no. God says, no, no one can see my glory and live. But I'm going to put you in the corner of a rock and I'm going to walk by and you'll see my backside. He says, you'll see my goodness. Moses asked for glory God offers goodness. Now here in the gospel message and what we're seeing Jesus pray for, when Jesus then says and prays that the disciples would see his glory, that's amazing. And if we look back to John chapter 1, we wouldn't be as surprised because John says, we have seen his glory, full of grace and truth. No one can know the Father. Jesus Christ has made him known. You see, friends, Jesus is praying that we would have the opportunity that Moses didn't have. That we would be able to look and live. And not only live for a moment, but live for eternity, gazing upon his glory and his goodness. His goodness was revealed to us on the cross. While we were enemies, He forgave us of our sins and offered us new life, eternal life. We've seen His glory. We've seen His goodness on display. And now Jesus is praying that we could experience that forever. Friends, are you praying in anticipation of that day? Are you praying in that forever hope of beholding the glory of Christ and, and living with Him, sustained by Him forever, anchoring your joy as you go sent out into the world as His disciple in the hope that you have? Do our prayers at Redeemer, do they reflect a longing for heaven? Dubai is the happiest city on earth, but heaven's going to be a bit better. Friends, Let's join Moses in the cry to see God's glory 
Because Jesus has prayed for that very thing to happen. You know, perhaps it's for that lack of prayer that we've lost our taste of eternity. We fill our minds with the moment, what we need to do tomorrow, the next week, the next year, and we fail to think about eternity. We fail to remember that our life is a vapor, here today, gone tomorrow. When you lay your head on your pillow at night, or you lose yourself in the day just thinking, when your mind drifts to eternity, what do you see there? Does it bring you joy? Jesus' prayer for his disciples is that when we think of eternity, our hearts would ring out. Come rejoice now, O my soul, for his love is my reward. Fear is gone. Hope is sure. Christ is mine forevermore. Protection, unity, consecration, joy, beholding his glory forever. These are Jesus' prayer list for his disciples. May they be our confidence eternally, and may they change our prayers now. Join me with one word of prayer before we sing together. Let's pray. Our Father, what hallowed ground to be walking through the very prayer of Jesus for us. Lord, we are so thankful that you did not withhold this from us, but revealed to us your very heart. Lord, thank you for Christ. Thank you for salvation. Thank you that we do not simply have to stand back calling to see your glory, but Christ himself desires to show us his glory. You, God, long to have us with you forever, enjoying you forever. So, oh, Father, we pray, would you keep us now? Unite us under Christ's name. Consecrate us to the work that you have called us to. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.